You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. This podcast is part of the Great Shutdown and its Medium Term Effects series from the 91 Investment Institute. And with me today is Daniel Morgan, analyst, multi-asset, 91, speaking to us from New York. Now, the title of the Great Shutdown is a good one, but I particularly like the piece that you kindly sent me. And it's all about the state and the return of the state with a question mark at the end of it, because the state is suddenly uh, exerting a huge influence on all our lives. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think the the background is that um, for probably 40 years or so, the influence of the state, certainly in the economic sphere, has been receding and uh, power has been given back to the private sector or has been um, has been devolved from, from national government to local government or even to, to international bodies. But in this crisis, it's really national governments that have had to step up and assume responsibility because they're the only ones with the ability to deploy the resources that are needed to manage this kind of of crisis and the question we're we're wondering about is to what extent uh this marks a, a turning point in that sort of trend away from uh state intervention and state involvement in in the economy and in in the private sector and whether there's a longer term influence here on on the role of government in society. That's very interesting, actually, because some states will inevitably, and we don't need to mention names, will abuse the power and abuse the COVID-19 crisis in order to gain what they've been seeking to gain for uh, many, many years. But others are genuinely in there in order to help the population. So it's a delicate uh, balancing act that we've got going on here between some countries and others. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I mean, in the piece, we we attempt to cover uh, the whole world, but certainly the the experiences in different countries will be will be very very different. And we've seen one very specific area where governments have stepped up activity massively is in their collection of data on the population and health data, obviously, and um, trying to design contact tracing systems and so on. And we've seen how in authoritarian countries that data has basically been been taken from from the citizens, and they don't really have a choice in the matter. In other regimes. There's a there's a balancing act to be found between you know getting buy-in from the public and and getting them to to want to contribute their data towards you know a public health effort. Yes, in the United Kingdom, for example, I've been watching the BBC over the last couple of days, and it's all to do with something called test and trace, which I think is a, a genuine attempt to help people through this this crisis. But other other states are maybe not abusing it, but certainly using it to their advantage. You say in your first paragraph, the response to the COVID nineteen pandemic has seen governments intervene in economies, financial markets, and everyday life with unprecedented speed and reach. The experience of the crisis and the public policy transformation it has brought about amount to a reordering of the social contract. We'll get to this at the end, but just as a backdrop to our next few minutes of conversation, do you think it'll ever go back to what it was? Or do you think that the policies that are being implemented now will become part of their, in other words, the authorities and our lives? I mean, our, our conclusion is that this shift is is too seismic to for things just to snap back to the way they were. I mean, I think you've seen you've seen sort of ideological breakthroughs that were just unimaginable. So you've had politicians who would have been extremely opposed to, to all sorts of government intervention, uh, voting through measures to have governments essentially paying the salaries of private sector employees or um, 
you know, in the US, the federal government is is essentially encouraging people, unemployed people, not to go looking for jobs by giving them payments which are in excess of what they were earning when they were employed. And so those those kinds of policies have been normalized to a degree and and the ideological opposition to them has just been has just broken down so dramatically uh clearly that's that's designed to be a short-term measure but i think inevitably some of those changes will prove more durable um and you know, you know some of the of that uh, normalization of, of the policies and just acceptance of of new ideas of what works in a crisis will just will flow through into more normal economic management so even after the crisis ends there will still be certain of these policies that will endure yes and i mean we think about it in in i guess two different ways that there's the sort of the very direct impacts and if you think about the healthcare sector and public health policy for example is is probably the most obvious area um and there i think the, the need to uh fund healthcare systems at a higher level than they have been and to and to to uh, introduce greater capacity into the system, I think is a very clear uh, consequence. And any worries about um, uh, how money is found to that for that for that purpose will just have to be pushed aside. And governments are just gonna gonna have to step up and and borrow more and fund those systems more extensively. Um, and then there are other areas where the effects may be more subtle. And I think um, in some of the um, the policies towards uh, redistributing. Um, of wealth and income across societies and of um, ensuring kind of greater job security and and employment rights for people. Uh, I think those effects are more subtle, but they're probably um, in the long run, the more, the more transformative parts of this. You say the following burning issues around inequality, employment practices, and the role of the corporation in society have been thrown into sharp relief by the uneven way in which the impact of the crisis has been felt and will remain at the top of the political agenda for the foreseeable future. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the inequality debate was always a relatively dry one, I think, which was in terms of, you know, numbers, wealth and, and income and how those how those statistical distributions look like across societies and how they change over time. But we've been given a very vivid and very real example of what that can actually mean. Um, and you know, every one of us has, has seen that in our everyday lives. And for those of us who are lucky enough to, to be able to, uh, to work from home and to, to stay, to stay safe, um, we've, we've see the privilege that that is and how, how difficult situation is for for other people who've had to you know put themselves at significant danger to to keep things working for us all um and i i just think that that just has a huge a huge political impact that goes beyond what um you, you know the sort of the uh, the statistical or the the uh, theoretical analysis could ever have, have provided on the issue does it open the door for political opportunists? In other words, uh, could there be a seismic political shift from whatever system we have in whatever continent we're talking about to, to something completely different? And if so, is that a good or a bad thing? When we look back, do we say to ourselves when we read the history books, actually, that was a rather good thing because we were all becoming a little bit stuck in a rut politically and uh, we were becoming complacent? I think we, we, can't, we can't know the answer to that now. We'll, we'll have to wait until those history books are written. Um, I mean, certainly it plays to populist talking points um, and, you know, any 
any populist politician will seek to take advantage of it. I mean, it's to be hoped that it's the spur to, you know, a, a serious and deep reflection on, on how societies and economies are structured to, you know, for the best of all citizens. But um, certainly that's not that's not a foregone conclusion. I mean, we, we look at some of the past examples where th- there are a number of, of historic events um, of, of this scale or, you know, e- even more uh, large-scale human disasters in history where you've had a the, that moment has marked a major shift and you've seen a much more equal society for example em, emerge on the back of that um but it's not always the case i mean the, the big the big example that that everyone points to is the black death now obviously the the death and destruction of of this pandemic is is nowhere near the scale of that where perhaps a third or maybe even more of the working age population of europe was wiped out um but in that example there was a, a huge shift in much of Europe towards much much more equal societies, much higher average wages. Um, but that wasn't the only possible outcome. And in parts of Europe, it actually uh, led to a really um, harsh form of feudalism being being imposed and sort of the opposite impact. So you, you can't say that this kind of this kind of disaster always has a single outcome and it's always a positive one. Um, but we can certainly find historic examples where the outcomes have been very positive. Indulge me if it would, because I'm going to read two paragraphs that you've written. The two that really stand out for me are the following. The bottom line is that once the crisis recedes, we should not expect to simply revert to the status quo ante. Just as myopia and social pressure compel generals to fight the last war, so too will the state begin preparing for the next crisis in earnest. It may become accepted that the state can and should intervene in similar ways on an ongoing basis. And the final sentence is as follows. The requirement to direct greater resources to healthcare and disaster planning is the most definite conclusion we can draw, but the larger changes related to inequality, employment and corporate responsibility may ultimately be more transformative. What we haven't spoken about is the private sector, and perhaps we should bring that in now, because after all, 91 is a fund manager. It manages people's money. Yes, absolutely. And um, the consequences there are, are again, intricate, and and there are many aspects to untangle. I mean, I think the corporate sector is not to blame for this crisis in the way that perhaps the financial sector was to blame for the great financial crisis. So there's not the same obvious need to to right some some big wrongs that had gone on within the corporate world. But at the same time, there's a, a clear feeling that particular sectors had overstretched or had been managed for the be- for the benefit of executives and shareholders rather than taking a broader account of their uh, their responsibilities to, to other stakeholders um, and this obviously is part of the big movement that we're seeing um, uh, across across the investment community to a greater consideration of of ESG issues and I think uh, the crisis will will just strengthen that push and uh, the sort of the the debates that are that are already extremely live around what what is the the correct way to uh, structure incentives for corporate management to ensure that companies are run for the benefit of, of the whole of society 
I think those those debates are just going to get more and more important over the years ahead. Yes, yeah, so weeks, months, years ahead, definitely. Daniel, my final question has a sort of two parts to it. The first one is, after what you've just outlined, governments intervening, states intervening, it's obviously going to stretch their central banks and their own balance sheets. And uh, in the long term, do you think, and medium and long term, do you think that might be detrimental to everybody because it puts a pressure on the financial system? That's the first part of the question. The second part of the question, which you can come to after you've answered that one, is will anything good come out of this? So let's start with the financial balance sheets of the central banks. I think our view on the fiscal situation is that the attempt that we've seen for much of the last decade to, to run... To, to manage debt levels down through austerity programs is over. And there is now a much greater willingness to provide fiscal stimulus and to run larger deficits on an ongoing basis. And that inevitably creates a, a difficult problem around, around government balance sheets. And there are no good ways out of that. I mean, in, in the first piece in the great shutdown series, uh, Russell Silverstone did some some really good analysis on the different sort of possible solutions to it yes. um, and it seems that the most likely combination involves some kind of financial repression so holding down real interest rates and hopefully a, a return of sort of modest inflation so that over time government debt balances at, at least don't run away to the upside and if they can be if they could be contained at sort of current levels then then maybe that's viewed as sustainable and there's not actually a need to to bring them back dramatically over time. Second part of the question was, will good come out of it? I, I, I can't help but think that there will be some good, although you can't say 100,000 deaths in the United States can be in the same sentence as the word good, but you see what I mean. The immediate impact has obviously been been horrific, in particular in certain areas. I mean, what one, one simple good thing is that we should be better prepared for this next time. I mean, there can be no excuses now about um, not understanding the risks that, that viruses can present. And I think from from the, from the point of view of societies overall, I think probably the biggest potential positive is a greater focus on a more equal distribution of resources and opportunities. And that's been something that's been argued about and debated for forever. And there are, there are no easy solutions. Um, but I just think the the focus that this that this experience has put on that problem. Uh, just means that it's it's not something that can be ducked any longer. Daniel, thanks so much for your excellent analysis. That's Daniel Morgan, analyst, multi-asset at 91, speaking to us from New York. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.